Hello, welcome back to the Common Sense Wellness Network podcast. I am your co-host, Timothy Crumley. I'm here with Emma Cranston, and uh, we're going to jump in, start off the new year, um, uh, sort of uh, off to a financial start, um, talking about, well, first off, we're going to touch on the No Surprises Act, something that we talked about going on a year ago, believe it or not, uh, when this act came into play. existence and came into law and some of the ways in which our group responded to it and then thoughts that Emma and I had at the time. Um, You can refer back to our previous episode for more information. Uh, We were going to do a part two, which uh, we do want to touch on today. Not going to be a long segment, but we do want to follow up on it. And now that we're basically a year out from uh, the No Surprises Act coming into effect, uh, what that's looked like and what we've been seeing. But um, our main focus today, will be talking about providers taking insurance and taking insurance versus self-pay and debates and opinions and thoughts on this. And Emma and I have our own personal views around this, but uh, this is a big topic within the medical community and even within the mental health therapist community. So, um, and obviously it impacts our clients. Uh, So we'll dive into that today. Uh, That said, first, uh, a little bit more about our group. The Common Sense Wellness Network is a group of practitioners comprised mainly of mental health counselors, social workers, and nurse practitioners serving clients within New York State. We are primarily a tele-based practice, although we do also offer in-person services, and we've been in operation since the summer of 2018. You can find out more about us on our website at www.commonsensemh.com. Thanks. Let's dive in. So first off, the... Well, first off, how are you, Emma? How are you doing? I am, thank you for asking, I am doing all right. Um, I know I did just take about a half hour before we started recording. Well, we just took a half <laughs> we hour. We did. Mutual event. Um, so, you know, things are going fine. Mm. Manageable, some stressors, but overall manageable. Mm. Um, Thank you for asking that. How about, how about yeah. you? How are you doing? Same. I know we yeah we had a little uh, processing session prior to the start of the podcast, um, and just so our listeners are aware, I don't think anything that was overly negative or or you know no. stressful for either one of us, but just ongoing stressors that we're each dealing with. But I think uh, no overall things are going well. I will say I've had personally I've had a good start to twenty twenty three. It I've been. Um, I don't know, more inclined towards 2023 than I think I was towards 2022. And there's probably a whole host of reasons for that. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, good start to the year so far, despite the stressors that you and I were just talking about. Um, Yeah. So I'll I'll take that. I love that perspective. I feel like I I started my 2023 very disorienting way. Like, I I know it's 2023. I am aware of that fact. But like, I got a nasty head cold on... um, New Year's Eve, uh, so I feel like that yeah. just started the year off. I, I say sick, it wasn't like I was very severely sick, but honestly, I'm, I'm a little bit of a baby when I have a cold, so mm. the year off slow, which maybe is what I needed, you know, a little bit of a ease into it, a restful, restorative start to the year. Yeah. So I can kind of reframe that. I'm not disoriented. I'm resting my way into the house. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, I'm trying not to put too much emphasis or pressure on the new year but there definitely has been this sense of like, um, I know for me, not, and we won't get too lost into this, but for me, um, I, my partner and I did a lot of rearranging of our apartment going mm. into the weekend of New Year's. Uh, and New Year's Day, we did a lot of cleaning. We, we you know, threw a bunch of stuff out that we weren't using. Um, I got my office into a much better state and it's much more comfortable and, and reflective of my needs and, you know, the work that we do here from home. So uh, that's been really nice. And um I, I try not to brag about this, but I, I will share this here. Part of the privilege or pro to having moved to a warmer climate is that it has been a very warm start to 2023 in Austin. So I've been immensely enjoying that. <laughs> um, I know it's been colder up in Albany, but mm-hmm. yeah. Well, that's yep. wonderful. I'm happy for you, even if I'm also jealous. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> our, our our listeners could not see your face as you were you were hesitating. Like, how do I say this in the nicest way possible? <laughs> you know, put a little practice into it. <laughs> uh huh. That's right. That's right. Uh, 
Yeah, but this said, so now we're in 2023 and we have um, we have a year under our belt when it comes to the No Surprises Act, which that blew me away when, you know, so we have a list of topics that we do have sort of outlined that we check to see if we want to pull from that when we do a new podcast. And Emma had pointed out that we did have a part two for the No Surprises Act listed there that, you know, we could jump back to. And it was like, yeah, wait, wait a minute. It's been a year since mm-hmm. that all happened, and the and the panic and all the therapist groups, you know, I mean, just oh my gosh, yes, all, all the therapists that were going to go bankrupt, and not, not to be a jerk, because I it, it was valid. It was valid. Like, wait a minute, like WTF? Like, what is what is this going to mean? What is this going to equate to? A lot of people weren't expecting it. I don't think there was a really good there wasn't really good marketing campaign around it that it just sort of snuck right. up on on the on yep. the on the professional community. Um, but yeah, uh, I remember just all the upheaval around it. And then, you know, we as a group, you know, made our changes in response to it is specifically regarding our financial agreements with clients and mm-hmm. the language that we include on there to better inform them. Um, but uh, yeah, any immediate thoughts, Emma, regarding this past year and what you've seen? I'm trying to think of a funny way to incorporate no surprises into this. Uh, there was no surprise in that it was really anticlimactic. <laughs> yes. I laugh internally with how, I don't want to say I was panicked, but I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is going to be, you know, this is a significant change. And, mm. and I, you know, based off of the information that we had initially received, because I, I know, like, I don't remember how much we talked about this in the initial podcast on the topic, but you did a great job like the practice mm. did a great job of informing us as the clinicians like what this is what does this mean how is this going to impact you mm. so i didn't really have too much concern about my personal practice um but it's so anticlimactic like once the initial rollout happened and i told my case law, hey you're going to have this new piece of paper to sign and of course i explained it thoroughly but they signed the thing and we've never talked about it again yeah Your clients won't bring it up like i i it has not been a part of my day-to-day life mm. i guess that makes sense yeah yeah really not as disruptive as as it was feared yeah sure yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think from my well, first off, I'm I'm glad that that was your experience as a provider in terms of how you know as a group how we navigated it, um, because yeah, that was that was the big thing was that we updated our our, our financial agreements, uh, and then yeah, I think that's what I've been seeing from both my caseload, but then also even more so from the administrative side that um, you know it's it's just additional informed consent that people sign off on. Um, I think there was definitely concern around at least, and I think this is what individual providers were feeling among other things. I know I was concerned about people's reactions to that, right? Basically seeing, oh, wait a minute, like you're projecting these gigantic numbers around what my treatment may cost. And for a lot of clients, it actually isn't what's going to happen. That's actually not what's applicable. These are scenarios that are meant to be kind of, okay, the most expensive, you know, pathway here or, or way this could go would be this, you know, and, and what that looks like, what that entails. Um, but I think for most clients, because that doesn't apply, yeah, there was this fear of like, oh, we're going to have a bunch of people who are in network or who this doesn't apply to suddenly, you know, fall off the intake process or not follow up because they're thinking, oh, they're trying to, you know, gouge me of, you know, all this money. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that didn't happen. Thankfully, I don't think we've had any client complaints or concerns raised. Um, and granted that data can be skewed because people who maybe see that and panic and then don't follow up any further, we're not going to have that data, but it also doesn't seem like our intakes have, you know, like our, our intake rate of, you know, successful intake completion doesn't seem to have shifted. I think the same, mm-hmm. roughly the same fraction of clients that, were completing their intake process before still are from what I can tell. Um, I haven't done a thorough analysis of it, but it, it definitely does not seem like there's been any shifts there. Um, and that's good. But yeah, I don't think, I think we've had a couple of um, instances where providers were like, Hey, like this language may be confusing for some clients. Do we have to include all this? And I'm like, unfortunately we do. Um, yeah. you know, just, this seems to be, you know, the most thorough that we can make this and that, you know, helps protect us, you as a provider, us and the client, you know, uh, ultimately, which is what this is meant to, to do. Um, it protects everybody the most, um, even if it's more kind of bureaucratic, you know, information. Yeah, it's a little cumbersome, but at the end of the day, too much. Yeah, you know, and we got down to a page. I mean, that's the thing too. Like, we added one page to our financial agreement. It's at the very front. You know, first thing the client reads through. Um, we have it on our website too, so people can look at this. 
you know, look at our our no responses act language. They could look at that before they even call us or sign up to be a client. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think that's that's the best that's going to get for now. It is still, I will say this, you know, it's still early in that this has only been a law for a year. So even though it has been a full year, um, you know, I know there were also concerns about, you know, there being these committees where, you know, people can file complaints and then they can come out, which I don't know how much of this we got into last time. I think we did touch on it, but um, where basically there'll be these state committees or boards where you can file a complaint and if the discrepancy is more than like $400 between what the No Surprises Act language explained and or what the the informed consent explained and what the client's bill was, the client can file this complaint and you can get sued for, not sued, but you can get a fine for tens of thousands of dollars and, you know, mm-hmm. um, which again, this is really meant for hospital-based systems, right? Like it, the, that's what the, the system is meant to really hold accountable. Individual providers see that in panic. Um, and we're not even at a point where I think I, I could be wrong on this. Please do not quote me on this. I have not looked into this at all. I have not heard anything about these committees. I've not heard anything about what that is entailing. And I think a lot of the structure around this is still being built and still, you know, I know I think the AMA sued over this law. So I know that there was a, there was a, the, I don't know what happened to that, if that's still a thing or not. I, I honestly don't know. But my point being that it's still very early on. So who knows if there's going to be other you know, repercussions, but I, I honestly do feel much better about it than yeah. at the beginning of the year. And I, I'm glad to hear it. it sounds like you feel similar in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably most providers do, but yeah, you know. I agree. It's no longer the, the uh, hot topic of conversation in the therapist focused Facebook groups I'm a member of. Yeah. So it's a good way of putting it right. It's not, yeah. I don't see it anywhere on social media or, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's I think that's the update. That's where that is yeah. at. Um, you know, Not and a huge one, but good to acknowledge. Good to acknowledge. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, sh- shifting gears. That all said, so thinking about uh, well, and this is actually part of what helps spur spur on our discussion today is that Emma, you know, you're seeing in some of those social media groups. I mean, I think this has been the case historically, but within yes. the private practice community you know, providers debating, do I go self-pay only? Do I take some insurance? What, like, how how to go about that? And just all the pros and cons and ethics and things to weigh out in it. Um, yeah, I guess, what what are what is some of what you're seeing? Because you're more in those groups than I am at this point. I've Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, I see a lot of hot debate, honestly. It, it seems quite... Hot debate. Oh, yeah, it gets yeah. spicy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Sure it does. <laughs> I will see it's it's pretty frequent that I'll mm. just see a question popping up around like, oh, how do you guys or how do like you other therapists discuss your decision to, you know, not accept insurance with your mm. clients? Or how do y'all decide whether or not to accept insurance? And there's already so much discourse around this. Um, I don't I don't think I've ever really seen anything mind-blowingly unique because mm. you know i feel like it is the it's gonna sound very dramatic the debate for the ages but it's <laughs> like it is the crux of the debate yeah yeah do i or don't i honestly i don't even know where i fall mm. personally i know in my practice i currently accept one insurance mm. i am paneled with one insurance company mm-hmm. and i of course would accept self-pay clients mm-hmm. i have had clients ask before like oh why don't you accept such and such insurance and i think gosh how have i navigated it in the past essentially i end up saying like it just doesn't fit with my practice my caseload is mm. full off of one insurance company and anything past that i would happily take a self-pay mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's kind of it yeah I think the side note is also i'm a little bit lazy i don't want to manage 10 million different 10 million i don't want to manage multiple different sources mm. of income and multiple like tax documents from all kinds of different mm-hmm. insurance companies. like yes keep it simplified self <laughs> yes yes just to speak on that from the administrative end of it, I mean, both, I mean, I take several different insurance plans with my practice. I haven't been, the difference for me is I haven't been taking on, well, actually, I think this is pretty similar to you too. I haven't taken on new clients. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, about three and a half years, I have not had a new client at this point. So 
that's another factor in terms of my experience with it. You know, um, and if you even if you take you know seven different insurances, if you're not taking new clients and you have the same caseload and they've been mostly you know paying and pretty steady and everybody's on the same page and set up, um, that in of itself makes it easier. Even if you're taking mm-hmm. a number of them, but I, yeah, I will say, I mean, going back to your, your one of your last points there, Emma, that um, it is something where when you take more insurance panels, there's just more room for drama, right? There's more room for issues, not saying a provider should or shouldn't take more insurance companies versus loss, but it is something where, you know, eventually you're going to start hitting panels, if not, you know, right off the bat that maybe have uh, trouble paying, that have trouble with their own internal structure and, you know, organization. I know the one that you do take, um, they're pretty well organized, right? They're pretty, you know, if we have a problem with a claim or something, I know common sense, you know, at least on our end, we have pretty good luck managing that with them. We can get information very quickly from them. They're very much more organized and just overall better run. Um, you work with some of these insurance panels and it's like, you, you wonder how they continue to exist or operate at all. I mean, they are just so dysfunctional and disorganized and it's so frustrating getting through to them. And it's hard on the administrative end because there are claims where I have to go back to providers and go, we can't figure this out. And honestly, we have done X, Y, and Z. We have put hours into this on your behalf and there is just no movement here. This is, you know, we can file a complaint with the state. There is a process with that um, if that's appropriate. But otherwise, there's not much more we can do with this. Those cases are few and far between. That's not anywhere near the majority or even a large group. But there's enough of them when a pro- provider's trying to get paid for a client. That's really frustrating. You know, it's like mm-hmm. they're, it, it can turn into a pro bono case, right, depending on the client circumstances and ability to pay. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I think that definitely there's there's pros and cons. But, you know, sticking with a few or sticking with one, you know, and, and, and opening up access in that way and one that you know that you you know, you can pretty, you know, effectively work with, or the group that you work with and can effectively work with. Uh, I think that that makes sense. Like there's definitely, it's almost like there's this gray area here. And I feel like you're tapping into some of that gray area and compromise, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have to take every insurance under the, under the sun, but you, you do take some, you know, that right. that's, and again, no right or wrong to people who take eight panels and no right or wrong to people who don't. And we can get to that as well because um, yeah. there's very much pros to that. And I think ethically that is absolutely okay. And I have some of my own you know, opinion and bias there. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I know. Mean, does that, what is that? What are your thoughts? Does that? I think you expressed it so eloquently, first of all. Mm. Um, I think, well, I, I guess I, I can't. I can't speak for others, but I know as a clinician shifting from, you know, I was working in a not-for-profit where I had zero awareness, really, of, like, reimbursement rates. Mm. I, I heard that phrase before. Like, yes. That was about as far as I went. Uh-huh. I did not know barely anything about it. Mm. And then shifting into private practice and kind of being faced with, like, okay, so do you want to panel with insurance? Do you not? If you do, what insurances do you want to panel with? Um, and there's this mystique around paneling with insurances where, and part of the contracts probably for every insurance company, I can't speak to that just because I'm only paneled with one, but mm-hmm. I assume for all insurance companies is that you cannot discuss those rates. That's right. With anybody. Mm-hmm. So one of the difficulties actually one of the things that did hold me back from paneling with more was like I got panels with one where I felt that the reimbursement rate was pretty adequate mm-hmm. and like it felt better than most mm-hmm. sure I would not want to be getting paneled with insurance companies that are like you know, you hear the horror stories sometimes, like sub sixty dollars for a mm. session. I don't want to get paneled with those companies. Right? Yes. And yes. That does mean that there are probably fewer therapists available for the people who have that insurance. Yeah. Yes. And that's very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I, I don't say that flippantly. Just that highlights part of the brokenness and issue within the system. Yeah. Um, yep. Because at the end of the day, this therapist is just trying to make their money as well. Because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. it's expensive for us all. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the guardedness around insurance rates feels very much like that work culture of like, oh, we don't discuss pay here. Mm, yes. yes. It's the same concept. <laughs> it's not coworkers. We're, I don't know, professional colleagues in a separate way. Yes. <laughs> like, 
it, I don't know. It's isolating. It serves to weaken. Like mm. there's there's so much less space to advocate for fair pay. Yes, absolutely. Fair reimbursement in this case. No, for sure. And I appreciate that comparison, Emma. I hadn't thought of it that way before. And that that is a really good way of putting it. it it's very much that kind of toxic, you know, kind of workplace capitalist dynamic of, yeah, we don't discuss pay. You don't know what other people are getting reimbursed. So you don't know how much you're getting screwed over. You know, you don't know how much mm-hmm. you're, you know, being discriminated against or whatever that might look like. And um, and it is, it's definitely, a, I think, an extension of that. And I'm just thinking too, like, as you're saying that, like, imagine, and by the way, nobody should do this because if you do this, especially if you do have insurance contracts, you will get sued and you probably will lose a lot of money. So don't do this. Mm-hmm. I would not do this. But imagine if somebody could create a database, right? Or like an app for providers where it's like, you know, where you're comparing insurance panels in terms of how they yes. treat you on a number of, including pay, right? Mm-hmm. And I take that back, actually. Somebody probably could create this and, and talk talk about certain metrics. But the pay, you're right. These are non-disclosure. These are, these are based on non-disclosure uh, agreements and contracts where you cannot disclose those rates, right? We can't sit here and say who pays what specifically. Um, and that's just the way that is. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, you know, but imagine if you could, right? Imagine if a provider could look at that and go, okay, so... It makes sense to panel with X, Y, and Z, but I'm not going to panel with A, A and B because, you know, their rates are so far off or so low. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is. I mean, this is where it gets into some of the ethical territory because then it's like you have clients that have these insurance. And, and clients don't know on their end, right, what these insurances pay, nor should that be their problem, right? What they, you know, what they should be informed of is if they have any cost share, right? Do they have co-pays or deductibles? And a good insurance company is good at, you know, updating their clients of that, like the one that you work with, Emma. My understanding is that those members and those clients get, you know, get statements on the regular. Um, that company is really good at keeping their clients informed as to how they, yeah. you know, what's happening, right? What you're being charged for. Because clients should know, too. Like, what did my provider charge the insurance? And then what did, you know, and if the insurance company is sharing that, that's that's okay. Um, and the client should have that information. But the point being, though, that the client should not be concerned about whether, you know, I'm satisfied with this panel and whether they're paying enough or, you know, how they're paying in comparison to other pay- Like, that's not, that should never fall on the client, obviously. That's not their problem. Um, and, but what happens is, you're right, that, that clients that have these insurance, they, they don't know that, oh, my insurance pays horrible. Like, my insurance is bottom of the barrel or near the bottom. Um, and then they, you know, they get that insurance, they're paying whatever they pay into it, or it's with their employer or whatever. And then they start to go to find healthcare. And people are like, oh, I don't take your insurance. I don't. And I've seen this happen to clients. They'll be like, you know, I don't know. Nope, I'm not touching that with a six-foot pole. And the client's like, what? Like, this is legitimate health insurance. How can you not take this? I've this every month and I can't even use it. Yes. I had a close friend of mine once. This was a, a long time ago. But, um, you know, she was complaining about this. This is from the consumer client end, right? So she's not a provider. She's not in mental health. She does not see at all the back end that you and I see with this. And she ran into that frustration where she could not find providers that took her insurance. And I remember her saying to me, this is funny because this person was more conservative. They're, they're, you know, tend to be more like libertarian. But they were like, you know, yeah, I, you know, I'm not for, you know, Medicare for all. But I do think that insurance companies should be like, or I think, no, she said that providers should be forced, should be regulated to take insurance. And I go, well, slow your roll there, honey. Oh, hang on. Hang on. Whoa. <laughs> I get where that's coming from. And under a certain context, I would probably actually agree with that. But there's a, there's a number of major stipulations there that we would need to address first. Um, and yeah, and what she, what she, and again, not her problem. She's not a therapist, not, not meant for her to, to be worried about. But like what she wasn't seeing is that these panels, some of them are really atrocious and not even... The rates aside, like I said, some of them are just horrible to work with. You can never get a rep on the phone. You submit claims and they don't get paid half the time. I mean, they are atrocious. And then some are great and very consistent and very transparent. It all depends. It all depends on the panel that you're working with. So, um, so yeah, again, that's not for the client to necessarily understand. But that said, I have a lot of caveats around, yeah, ethically, can you argue that somebody should be taking insurance to increase access to care for clients? Valid argument there, but there's a lot of, I think, a lot of asterisks and, and just a lot of uh, points here in terms of just how broken the system is. Or, And I, I you know, hear, hear people say it's not broken, it's working as designed. Um, however you view it, right? Uh, it sucks. <laughs> it's not. It's not working well for the for the client or for the person, right? Regardless right. of that, whether that's by design or not. And so, um, but like, but these are the, the pieces as to why, right? It gets very complicated. It gets very nuanced. 
and like provider rates, you know, that not, you know, that being something that can really be anything, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, an insurance company can decide to pay $40, you know, per session, which again, if you don't, if you don't know the back end and what that looks like, that might not seem terrible. Um, but that's before your taxes, that's before your overhead. A provider is mm-hmm. p- taking home maybe five or 10 bucks after that. Like that's not, right. you know, that is Best not. scenario. Best case scenario, right? And, yeah. and we all know how far that goes now, right? Like that didn't go far before but like that is going that's going uh what am i trying to say that that's that's going less and less right in terms of like Mm -hmm. i'm having a total like verbiage moment here but that's not going anywhere near as far as it used to and and that's only getting worse right that's only and like you said that well too it it, it's something where um this is what's negatively impacting all of us right Mm -hmm. as clients and providers and yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's the landscape it's interesting that you're highlighting you know it's not on the client that's not even something they need to to be informed of. That's not their problem. Mm-hmm. One of the things that have been really interesting to me is some of the folks, again, within these therapist-centered social media groups, there's been an increased, um, I wouldn't say pressure, but there's been increased discussion of being more transparent with clients. Mm. Oh yeah, I don't panel with that insurance because their reimbursement rates are atrocious. And you know, yeah, mm. it, it makes sense that you're struggling to find a therapist because you know they're they're really not a great, uh, they're not very organized. They're not a great insurance company. Mm. And people will highlight, um, you know, we want to advocate for changing the system, but the clients need to know to essentially join in that fight. Mm. That's not my belief. Mm. It's just for exactly what you're saying I don't think I, I think I don't want to say this too uh, aggressively but I think there is a, a higher potential for abuse of a power differential there mm. like, say more about that hey, yes. there's an issue Yes. now you go get it, thanks client yes, yes. I'm that one as a therapist I'm automatically in a higher position of authority mm. than my client mm. just that's I have right. the power to terminate. Yes, my clients also have a power to terminate, but they're supposed to abruptly mm. be able to terminate. They shouldn't feel as though their ability to receive therapy with, with me is threatened by my ability to abruptly, like, well, you're not advocating with your insurance, bye. Yeah, um, yes, that's right. That does not work for me. I work for my client. Yes, um, yes, yes. And I extend that to potential clients as well in the sense that you know, if I have somebody who's out of network and looking to receive services with me, mm. it is essentially like, okay, well, here is my my self-pay rate. Yes, I am offering a, a sliding scale. Yeah. You know, there's a there's a bottom to that. You know, it's not just open-ended. Uh, and I'll give them some information about how to, you know, if you need a super bill, if you're trying to obtain out-of-network benefits, if your plan covers any of that, like, I will give them that information because it benefits them. Mm. No, I'm not going to contact their insurance because I would need a whole release to do that. Like, I'm not going to be calling their insurance to find out the specifics of their plan because that ultimately is their responsibility. Yes. So to me, that is no longer an abuse of the power differential. Mm-hmm. That is me sharing information. You can do something with it. Or you don't have to. Yeah, that's right. Pay out of pocket and you don't try to get reimbursement from your insurance company. That's fine. You don't have to. Yes. I'll give you the information though, because I would love for you to save some money where you can. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, no, a hundred percent. Well, a couple, a couple of thoughts. So, I mean, that starts getting into two, which um, is relevant to this conversation, the differences in how to, uh, how to approach out of network benefits yes. right and that the approach that you're describing there which i think for common sense we tend to, to advocate our providers do this so there are some exceptions to it but um that for the most part you know taking the approach of yeah no this is actually a self-pay agreement you seeking reimbursement from your insurance is a separate thing that you are welcome to do that is between you and them i don't take that insurance i'm not paneled with that insurance so as far as our purposes go we are self-pay right yes. and i think there's a certain form of consent in that and i think you know you talk about and maybe that's where some of the gray area is here, right? Because that maybe in that context, if there's a conversation of, well, why don't you take that insurance? And, you know, because I, jumping back for a moment, it's tough because I agree with you, Emma. I don't think this should be falling on the client. And there's a power differential that, unfortunately, I think maybe that gets a bit lost in that conversation, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like the therapist is maybe well-intended, but they're not thinking about 
the position that that's putting the client in, and I can speak to that in a moment actually, but um, but that it absolutely does put the client in a position when the client's the one needing care, right? We're trying to manage a business. We're trying to manage our own livelihoods. We're trying to pay our bills, all important and valid, but the client's trying to get clinical care. So that's where there's that power differential, right? Where it's like, yeah, there's an agreement here. This is a professional relationship. Um, at the same time, yeah, it's, it's, the client's position is very different from ours, and we have to recognize that. So when you start doing this, oh, well, they're going to join in on the fight, and I'm going to disclose all this to them, you have to be very mindful of what impact is that actually having for them. Um, I could see in the context of an out-of-network situation, a provider going, hey, you know, would it be transparent? Honestly, um, I have not had great experience with your insurance company, and unfortunately, they have not treated providers very well. Unfortunately, you know, they don't have to get into rates. They can just say in general, right, like this is not a good company to work with that's been my experience so this is my approach with this i don't panel with them i only you know this would be a self-pay situation and that's why clients having that informed consent and then being able to decide on their own okay what does that mean for the insurance that i have do i have other options do i they can navigate that and decide what they need to do but and maybe in that way there can be some of that but I, yeah i think you're right emma that especially in an in-network situation or you know if you're really kind of um I think sort of uh, falling on that, right? If that's if that's the approach of like, hey, like my client's going to know all the the details here and all the you know uh, underpinnings of of this or my reaction or you know what you know what the issue is here, um, we have to be mindful of the position that that puts them in. One and just one example I'll share. Obviously, without sharing any identifying information, is I have had cases. I had I've had one client in particular who ran into this where they were trying to get services at a medical type of clinic. And they were um, they were aware that they probably couldn't use their insurance, but they were gonna. Um, I think the the clinic was. I'm trying to remember exactly what was happening at this point because there's been a lot of back and forth. But basically, um, the clinic has offered to submit claims for out of network because the other way you can do that, which again you don't, Emma, and many providers of common sense don't, is that you can bill for out of network internally, and that gets a lot more complicated. Um, which is why we don't do that, and we can get into that too either today or maybe in a future episode. Um, but this clinic was offering to do it on the back end, right? Well, we'll submit claims and see where they go. Um, there are some special cases of common sense where we do that too. Um, but again, in general, we don't we don't push that. Um, but what happened was this clinic also came back to the client and basically, you know, did say to them, hey, listen, like this is why you. You know, like this is a particular insurance company. We tried to get them to, you know, give coverage. They wouldn't for these reasons. And basically kind of badmouthed the insurance company. And then basically told my client, hey, here are some alternatives and some basically better insurance companies that you may have more success at getting coverage with us with. Now, there are aspects of that that I, I get what the clinic was trying to do and what they're and mm-hmm. And again, to kind of get into, hey, like this is the insurance that we take. This is what we don't. But what happened was they they got into all the, all the sort of, back end details of it and then for my client basically they were like hey like you know you, you just need to switch to this other insurance and kind of left the client feeling as though they had picked the wrong insurance and they just need to go to this other one and my client didn't have that option like that wasn't and even if they did my client understandably was pretty upset of like well wait a minute why are you telling me to tell me what insurance to pick I have health insurance, like, and it, and it totally derails the conversation, right? Now the client is being shamed for having the wrong health insurance, which is exactly what you want to avoid. That's what should not be on them, right? They did not do anything wrong by picking that insurance plan, or especially if it was an option by their employer and they only had a couple of options, maybe even yes. only one option, right? Like, yep. that's not on them. Um, nope. But what happened was the conversation became dysfunctional, and I'm sure that was not at all the intention of this clinic, but that's that's what happened, and it left a bad taste in in the client's mouth. So I think to your to your point, Emma, that's what can happen if you're not mindful about what you're sharing, why you're sharing it, the intent in sharing it, and what that means for your client. And, and yeah. in terms of navigating some of these dynamics with the insurance, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever I have clients who are navigating, you know, whether they've had a job change or they're turning twenty six, you know, oh, whatever yeah. the, the dreaded twenty six, man. Yes. Um, Whatever the thing is, where it's like, oh, you're going to be navigating an insurance change. I will essentially say, okay, well, friendly reminder, here is the insurance that I am paneled with. Obviously, you have way more to consider than me when Mm. choosing your insurance. Yes. Um, But I just want to make you aware that unless it is this insurance 
we would have to either discuss some other options, shift to self-pay, explore some out-of-network, or unfortunately work towards termination. Mm, like, yeah. and transition to a new provider. Yes. And, and, you know, of course, I'll get, go into, like, I will help you try to find a provider. Of course, I cannot make any promises just because the need is high. Yes. Like, I don't, I can't over-promise my ability. That's right. But I, I think that is such a juxtaposition to, well, make sure you get that one type of insurance I take. Yes. Because the, the difference there, and I, and I appreciate that that alternative dialogue that, that you're outlining there, because the, the difference there is that you're, you're able to, again, kind of give that informed consent or that, that information, but without centering yourself as a provider as much, right? You're saying, hey, I understand that there may be 18 other reasons why you have the insurance that you do. Please do not make these gigantic changes just for me if that's not going to be in your best interest. That's not what I'm saying. This is just so you know what I take and what I don't, you know, yeah. and that's, and the in and out of network conversation, I think is a bit easier in that way, right? It does sort of draw this line of like, this is, you know, where I have contracts and this is where I am, you know, I do provide you know, services for these insurance companies, these are the ones where that's not the case, right? And where mm-hmm. it would be self-pay or, you know, uh, what have you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, there's, so I feel like this then it kind of, kind of shifting, but related that question of being self-pay only, right? So a provider who, provider who comes into this, right? And I think in a very healthy, okay way, looks at all this and goes, oh, absolutely not. For my <laughs> sake, for the client's sake, fuck the systems. I don't want to like, no, no, I'm not. And then, you know, we haven't even gotten into insurance auditing. We haven't gotten into like, you know, again, like the 18 different ways you can inadvertently commit fraud and wanting to make sure you don't do that. Like all these different liabilities and other issues that come up. So a provider looks at all that and goes, no, like I want to take that out of the equation. I just want to meet with my client and have services. Um, and then does that. And I've, I've heard providers get uh, negative feedback around, Hey, but you don't, but you're not accessible, right? You're not taking insurance. Again, there's valid points to that. There, there, there's an and here. That said, um, <laughs> I say there's an and here, I'm going to say but. Uh, but <laughs> but um, thinking about the pros and cons of that, though, like why would a provider go self-pay only? And not, yeah, not just to line their own pockets, but like why would they go self-pay only? Why would somebody choose to do that and we have some providers in our group who have and i think have done so for valid reasons and they they and their caseloads have benefited when they've done that that's why i have a strong opinion here i'm like when i hear people start i i empathize where it comes from but i i want to try to explain like yeah but can you see why you know this may be a pathway here and why providers choose to go down this pathway um Mm -hmm. and there can be actually a lot of benefit to it for everybody involved um so much what are your thoughts on that yeah like the freedom of being able to personalize therapy in ways that being paneled with insurance doesn't allow. Yes. Um, you know, like there are some providers who offer, you know, an hour and a half session or a two hour session rather than a 53 minute and not a minute longer kind of a session. Cause That's you know, right. I get, I get reimbursed for my 53 minutes. That's right. Um, yep. the freedom to not be, tied to diagnoses, mm-hmm. right? We all go through grad school and we're told, don't diagnose in the first session. And then you get pounded with insurance and they're like, diagnose in the first session for else. That's right. Like, you know, like the, yep. the disconnect between the insurance system and the mental health system can, can really be jarring in some ways. Mm. And yes, there have been plenty of, of workarounds, plenty of ways to adjust to that. I, I'm not taking that away. Yeah. But I can only imagine the freedom of, I don't want to say like, I can do what I want as a therapist, because I don't want to imply mm. that it's a flippant pseudoscience kind of approach. I think you can provide some really interesting and impactful kinds of interventions that, you know, like I'm thinking specifically of something like trauma work, mm. where I love providing trauma therapy. I, I love yeah, that. Yes. I can't lie and say that I've never felt the constraints of like, okay, so we're like deep into it and the session ends in 15 minutes. So like, yes. I gotta turn this around to get my client safe to leave. I can only imagine the freedom of, oh, I have myself scheduled for an hour and a half block and maybe we don't take it. Mm. But maybe we do. Mm-hmm. And in the event that we do, I'm really ensuring client care and safety and like ethical work yes yeah 
answer. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> I, f- I feel like these all these points and questions require long, intricate, an- uh, you know, responses and mm-hmm. uh, uh, follow up. Yeah, I I, uh, I agree with that completely. And, that's, and it was funny you were saying that that was one of the main things I was thinking of kind of switching into this piece of it that, you know, when you are self-pay with a client, um, yeah, that it's so much more customizable, right? That you can yeah. really customize what the client needs, what the provider, you know. And then there's also the room for slang scale too, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. the other piece here is that providers, you know, it's always a sort of juggling act of having, you know, some, you know, maybe full pro bono slots or if not, slang scale slots at least. And then you do need full pay people to to cover that, right? Like it's, you're kind of having to create your own kind of, um, you know, sort of system with that, right? Where, yeah. you know, to pay the bills of the practice, to pay the overhead and then to have your own income and to be able to pay your own, your own bills um, and to have that work, yeah, there has to, you know, you have to meet a certain baseline. So, mm-hmm. you know, but, and while that can be a juggling act and that can be stressful and there's a lot of, I think, skill and learning that goes into that, it's doable. It's possible. Yes. Um, again, we have providers who, who are doing it. And I think that there is, um, and again, going back to your points earlier, Emma, about out of network, clients can still submit super bills, right? You can still mm-hmm. have it where, yeah, your agreement with me is self-pay, but here's a detailed receipt. Um, I, you know, I've had it where too, sometimes they, they require a letter from the provider stating, you know, the care or the nature of care and providers can usually provide that. They can give that information to the client to use for their insurance, but it really takes that contract out of the equation, which I can say too, just, it does, it makes the work a lot healthier and more client centered. Um, and that's the, you know, this is where, and and I remember talking with another provider about this, um, at least a few years ago, I think it was pre COVID, but this conversation, like you said, this has been a long standing debate for providers. This conversation was happening in a group somewhere else and it came up and I think I actually commented in a social media group. I think I actually said this on online, but I basically said like, cause I think the provider was shaming another provider for being self pay. Maybe I'm not sure what the context was, but I remember saying in the comment going, you know, I think the real issue here is the landscape and the systems that tie. And I didn't, again, not exact wording, but basically my point was that tie accessibility to you know, to these systems and to how insurance works, right? The problem is how the insurance companies navigate this and yeah. what a free market healthcare system does and doesn't do. The issue isn't the provider figuring out how to survive and, and how, to, how to navigate that with their clients. That's not mm-hmm. the problem here. And a provider that decides to panel and decides to go down that route of navigating it or decides to try to be separate from it and be self-pay, a, a provider having to, to weigh that out and decide that, that's not where the problem's lying here. The problem is that the system is so dysfunctional in of itself that a provider or a practice and clients are put in that position to begin with, mm-hmm. to have to figure mm-hmm. out, do I even take insurance? Like It shouldn't even be a question, right? It should be more ideal to be able to engage with the systems that increase accessibility for clients. Like that should be, you know, like that, you should right. be able to gravitate towards that. But there's 18 million reasons why providers are not only not gravitating towards that, why they're repelled by that. And why yeah. that system, you know, taking insurance, being paneled, comes with a ton of caveats. It does. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're selling your soul as a provider in, in some ways. So, mm-hmm. again, the ethical frameworks are complicated. But then how do you weigh out those ethics of, I'm going to decide to take this insurance to increase accessibility. That's great. Good for you. But then I'm, I'm also kind of selling my soul. And, right, I can't go beyond 53 minutes or I can't, yeah. you know, um, or, yeah, or the insurance company is going to swoop in and say, nope, that died. this has happened recently in a few cases. And I think it's actually a... a uh, this is just my own theory. I haven't read anything that says this is the case. I think this is all recoup for, for COVID, right? The insurance companies are trying to recoup funds from COVID losses. Um, but a lot of insurance um, companies now are nitpicking more so with the uh, diagnosis codes, right? So you'll be using a, a very like, it's it's in the DSM. It's in, it's the, it has an ICD code. It's a legitimate diagnosis. Like these are billable codes. I was actually talking about this with with Carlos the other day um, because he was complaining about this actually came up with a client with one of our providers where randomly the insurance company was like, yeah, we don't don't cover that code anymore. You have to pick a new code. And Carlos is like, how do they, so Carlos, it was actually, it was, it was kind of cool. So Carlos doesn't have a clinical background, right? He has experience with billing and administration, but he doesn't have experience as a provider. He's not a licensed provider. So he goes digging and he gets the full um, ICD-10 book, right? He gets so... (laughs) And so this led into, so he shares this with our providers and he goes, by the way, this is, you know, this is what tends to be billable or not. And 
well, first off, my reaction is, oh, that, that's really cute. Second, um, I ha we have a conversation. I go, well, this is when we talk about the DSM. This is actually what the DSM relates to, right? DSM codes and ICD codes. That's what both of these. And DSM is just the American version of that, basically, right? And the rest of the world uses the ICD. Anyway, I'm going over all this with him. We're talking about it. But um, he's pointing out, he goes, yeah, I don't understand because that, that's what this guide is for. And we're using these codes that are in the ICD-10. Therapy notes, our EHR automatically uses these codes. So how are these getting rejected? And I go, that's a really good question, honey. That's a really, really good question. Um, and no, it's the insurance company and their medical team, whoever that might include, um, looking at this and going, no, what, what codes can we not include to save money? Right? Mm -hmm. What codes can we say, hey, you know, we don't really think this is actually a valid code to use because of X, Y, or Z. So we're not going to. And then so suddenly this universal guide as to what the billing is supposed to be no longer applies in every case. Yeah, I mean it's a universal guide unless I don't like it. Exactly. That's exactly yes. Or unless or unless it doesn't fit with my interpretation, which my interpretation just happens to fit with what saves the insurance company money, right? Like interesting that those are never the folks attacked for their ethical guidelines that they're supposed to uphold. Huh? Right. Yes. Yes. But yet they're stepping in and making. I mean, we know this is the case with medication, right? This goes outside of the scope for you or I. But we know psychiatric providers and medical doctors are subject to this all the time. They prescribe mm -hmm. medication that they know is clinically fitting for the client, and the insurance company rejects it and goes, "Yeah, we're not going to cover that because we think this other one, this more generic version, or this other one would be better." And it's like, who, like who? who the fuck are you? <laughs> how did like, you, who is this? But like, but that, that is how it's worked and it's worked that way for a long time. So I, yeah, I think the point to all that being that, you know, when we talk about engaging with these systems and engaging with insurance paneling, um, that's some of what you're having to engage with, right? That's, yeah. those are the, those are just some of, and there's more too, but those are just some of the caveats that they, mm -hmm. they in very intricate ways and in ways that you don't even expect will begin to dictate your care. Now, like you said, now you're suddenly having to diagnose in the first session, which again, we know is, is not realistic. Um, yeah. You're having to, uh, right, pick diagnoses that hopefully that need to fit the client because obviously you have to be accurate. You can't lie. At the same right. time, it has to fit the, insurance company's expectations so it just it creates this you know and like and that's a good point you made earlier too emma that self-pay uh providers don't even have to diagnose right if you're seeing a client and you're seeing benefit the therapy and you outline goals for therapy and it doesn't necessarily correspond to a particular you know icd code or medical diagnosis mm -hmm. great then yeah. you don't have to diagnose them and then they don't have to have that on their chart and then they don't right. have to face the stigma of that and so it's yeah, it gets complicated very quickly. Yeah, yeah it does. It yeah. does. It's a very uh, dysfunctional system to exist within. Yes, um, yes. Ugh. And it can be rather exhausting. Yeah. You know, like, yes. ultimately, at the end of the day, when it comes to do I panel, do I not, it is the decision of any provider. At that same time, perhaps instead of judging or guilt tripping providers who are doing a version different than what you know i think they should do mm. perhaps we should turn to the system instead right like we there can be right. this yes. infighting i don't know if it gets as aggressive as that but mm -hmm. there can be this infighting and judgment of like oh well what about your ethics and how dare how mm. dare you you know be concerned about your own financial wellness over your client's well-being ultimately we aren't the therapist for every client. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. We cannot be, we will not be. Gotta let that go. Ultimately, our wellness, including our financial wellness, our, our like emotional wellness, because let's mm -hmm. be real, interacting with insurance can take an emotional toll, especially That's if right. it's one of those like not so great insurance companies who's like very non responsive, who's very inconsistent in coverage like that takes us a, a very stressful emotional toll on a therapist yeah we all need to find our own sense of balance and wellness that's right it would be great the system could get its shit together so that we didn't have that added weight of decision making yes that's right <laughs> that's right and i think that's the thing too like if we were working within systems that were again more client-centered that that did not treat clients and providers in the ways that we're talking about today when I have somebody come up to me and go, well, I, I think it should just be one and the same, that providers should just have to take insurance, I can get more on board with that if you had something that was, right, paying a livable, 
you know, amount to providers, right, to be able to manage what they need to. Um, and that didn't come with all these caveats. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like this just, it, yeah, it gets so much more complicated. And I think you're right, Emma, that the focus tends to become, that there is some infighting with it and that there tends to be this sort of shame based back and forth over it. Yeah. And it's like, no, like there's, again, it's like, it's like judging anybody in terms of trying to survive these systems, you know, where it's mm-hmm. like, there's different ways of doing that. And mm-hmm. yeah, you have to weigh out through your ethical decision-making models what you feel is going to create the, the least harm for yourself included, right? Because yeah. if you're not okay or not stable, you're not going to be able to, not to get into, you know, old school AA cliches, but you're not going to be able to help somebody else and that there's a, there's mm-hmm. a reality to that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's that piece of confidence. If I'm burnt out and losing my mind because I'm paneled with all these crappy insurance companies and what quality therapy am I providing? Right. Am I talking to see who knows? Cause I, I haven't looked at that stuff in years. Cause I'm just trying to keep my head above water. Yes. yes. Not, you know, I'm getting my year end audit again. Yes. Like, how do you, I know I presented a very obviously like dramatized mm-hmm. example, but still, yeah. I'm probably not providing the most competent therapy in those moments. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's not optimal. You're not at your, right. yeah. Yep. You're not mm-hmm. at your best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm realizing too, I know our episode went way longer today than it normally does. Um, yep. Which I think is okay. That's fine. But we probably should wrap it up. If that, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot here. And clearly we could definitely continue on with this discussion we got some passion here we do we do i'm glad we talked about it and um took some time today to to focus on this piece and hopefully it's hopefully it's helpful to providers who listen and then you know clients you know and again like if any of this information is helpful in terms of just understanding some of the landscape Mm -hmm. and yeah you know hopefully coming from a source that again doesn't have to be the therapist either right yeah you're just listening to this and getting some information and this isn't you know unless my clients are listening, but that's another thing, I guess. But in general, hopefully that that's helpful. It's not, it's not within the therapeutic context that you're, you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, we'll wrap up for today. Sounds good to me. Thank you so much, Emma. I appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll follow up in our next episode. Sounds good. All right. Bye. Bye.